Welcome everybody to episode 14 of the Digital Guardian podcast. I'm Thomas Fisher. I'll be hosting the podcast alone today. The other team members have other engagements this week. We are welcoming this evening Andrew Hay, who is the Chief Technical Officer for Leo Cybersecurity. Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me on. My name is Andrew Hay. I'm the CTO at Leo Cybersecurity. We're a... You know, I, I hate to use the team the term boutique, but it seems to to resonate well. You know, a, a small boutique cybersecurity firm that deals primarily with virtual CISO, technical architecture, and threat hunting and incident response for mid market and above companies. That's interesting. So, how how did this virtual CISO and services come about? What's the reason behind offering these services? Well, so one of the things that we've noticed, especially with our mid-market customers, and I, I think it's safe to say that, you know, when you're talking about a credit union, you're not thinking, oh, they're, you know, a multi-trillion dollar company or multi-billion dollar company like one of the big four banks. And in fact, I've learned very quickly that credit unions despise the term bank. You know, they are a credit union serving their members. They are not a big faceless financial institution. That being said, they don't have the same kind of funding for IT or security that those big banks do, yet their customers still hold them to the same regard and standards of a large bank. So a challenge of a small organization with limited funds means that finding, attracting, and retaining talent becomes a very big concern for them. So one of the things that we've done over the past, I'd say, six to 12 months is we've kind of decided to follow the virtual CISO route and offer these companies fractional or part-time resources from a pool of qualified CISOs across various industries. And, you know, it's resonating really well. They may not have a need for a full-time CISO or security architect, but they can definitely use a person one day a week, a few hours a week, and it helps them move the needle quite a bit. Practically, how does that work? Because I mean, you know, I've got a lot of friends who are CISOs in in the financial industry, probably more for for slightly larger organizations, but some medium-sized organizations. And I mean, they're busy 24-7. If this service is only say like once a, once a week or, or a few times a month, how do the companies get benefits out of this? What's the practicality in implementing such, such a virtual CISO type role? Well, you have to think of scale. So if we're talking about a large financial institution, they generally have a mature security program that is running, you know, it could be argued that it's running well, that it's not running well at all. But it's it's running. There are a lot of moving pieces. A lot of these smaller firms don't yet have anything more than an acceptable use policy. So they don't really have a security program. They may have some tools that they've brought in to address some findings that an external auditor said they should probably go look at. But they don't have a security program set up. So in terms of a part-time resource to help them build and monitor the the effectiveness of the smaller pieces of the program 
it's a much easier sell for a virtual CISO because let's, you know, let's take the CIS top 20 for an example. And I like to reference them quite a bit because it gives organizations a, a meaningful and, you know, I, I would say an addressable in bite-sized chunks kind of, of framework that they can go down the list one at a time. So you start with the top five that have the most impact and you, you bite one of those off per quarter and then you measure the effectiveness of that. And then once you're satisfied with it working properly, then you can tackle something else or start tackling different things in parallel. And, you know, ultimately a lot of these organizations are going to have a technical resource of some you know, some capability and they'll be able to help that person and learn the job a little bit more from, from a CISO perspective. Right. I understand. So, I mean, the assumption is that there, there's always a technical person that has to be some kind of technical role in, in place. Do you see this, I mean, this requirement being there because we, we, we are in, in a, in a state of lack of resources. Is it just, would you say that's the the main reason why we've come to a situation where we have to, some companies have to rely on virtual services? I think it is. It's, you know, it's a sad reality. I would love to see organizations employ a full-time CISO reporting to the CEO. That's the other thing is the reporting structure. Many organizations don't want to give up a seat at the board level, but that's where a CISO is going to be most effective. So what what you're really doing is you're bringing in a CISO, generally reporting into the IT side of the house or the risk side, and they're helping build the program and frame all of the concerns of both sides and trying to bring that to a meaningful roadmap or you know sensible point. With the amount of systems that are moving from standard paper and there's a lot of a lot of older industries that are still doing the majority of their transactions and and work with paper as those documents become digitized then there becomes the concern of managing the data and the sensitive information contained within said data and that's not something that the person who was responsible for locking the door with all the manila file folders and manila envelopes has the skills to actually accept as part of their job because it's not something they were ever trained for. They may not have the technical ability to do anything more than convert the documents in the first place. The security of that documentation and the increased risk of exposing that information, it's an exponential growth in risk from someone going into a room and taking armfuls of papers with individual account information versus being able to connect to a storage area network and downloading PDFs or Excel spreadsheets with all customers' information in it. It's, you know, much less risky these days. And as a result, you need the security people there to actually tell people and help, help organizations understand that threat. Yeah, I mean it's it, and it's hard. It can be hard, right? Because you know, I was actually talking to to somebody this this afternoon. I mean, it's not you know we when we think about 
the threat on 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 data on our on the company's data, we tend to think of external threats, yes, but we also think internal threats. Typically, we point out somebody lower in the organization, right? Like you say, that person who's handling that envelope that isn't necessarily trained well enough to understand the the, the risk associated with managing that data properly. But I, I mean, I know of cases where. Yeah, we there's a vice president of a small insurance, you know, of a medium sized insurance company that was caught copying data b- right before he left the company, but right before he was about to leave the company, and you know, not not just any lambda data. He was copying customer information and potential client list, and he, he was going to a, to a competitor of that uh, of that company. I mean, this is something. Yeah, you know, we can talk about awareness. How does that fit into to a virtual CISO type and you know virtual services type activity? How do you communicate that awareness? Because some people in the, in an organization might see you as as well. It's an external party. I don't really need to listen to them. How does that fit in? How do you get that awareness aspect, or uh, for lack of a better term, to the people and make them make them understand some of the requirements that you're trying to implement, or some of the compliance aspects that you're trying to implement? Yeah. So. It's funny you mentioned that. So I used to work in the information security office for a bank in Bermuda. So I lived and worked in Bermuda. At that time, there were four, four big banks. Well, four banks, period. And that scenario that you described was a real concern. That was something that we had to deal with all the time from tellers to vice presidents going to a competing bank and trying to take the client list and account information with them in the hopes of moving them from one bank to the other. So that's something that we had to incorporate into our our technology monitoring stack. And it's not something that was very easy to report on. And when something popped up, it was a big deal because, you know, there could have been many millions of dollars associated with those people leaving. So that was a a monetary attachment that made the organization aware that this issue was a problem. Now, Something else that I've noticed over the years is, especially in the financial services industry, but also in healthcare and critical infrastructure, is that a lot of organizations in those specific industries tend not to feel a a sense of urgency because, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever put your hand on a stove element. My mother told me, you know, don't do that because it's hot. And, you know, as a, a toddler, I, I thought, well, you know what? I'm much smarter than you, so I'm going to put my hand on on it anyway. And then I got burned, and now I have a scar to to remind me that hey, you know, elements on stoves are hot, and that the the old adage that you know you don't know if it's bad if you've never been burned before it's it's very true in information security. So a lot of these organizations have never had a significant breach that they know of. Or it's, you know, it may have happened to a colleague or a peer at another institution, but not at theirs, so they figure they're safe. One thing that I've found is that coming in as an external third party with experience across multiple industries, the organizations are looking for help and they are actively listening and asking the questions that they should be asking on, you know, is this really a threat to us? Do we need to be concerned? Do what we have deployed from a technical control or even 
policy and procedure side of things, is this sufficient to keep us secure? And, you know, they, they do tend to listen more than the large Fortune 2000, Fortune 500 companies that have large teams that have a lot of structure and, you know, have a lot of money to throw around to try and protect themselves. Or they're more, definitely more receptive. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I, I, I see your point. It's, I've always found it difficult, you know, to, to wait to balance that aspect of, of somebody coming in, coming from, from outside and telling you what to do versus, you know, some, somebody with that same corporate culture or with that same interests in, you know, in, in keeping the company running properly versus, you know, somebody's only there for a temporary time. I was, you know, I spent some time in consulting it, there's always a, a balance to, to come out with what advice to, to adhere to. Along that same vein, I one of the things that I try to do is, and I try to approach it is, you know, I'm from the internet, I'm here to help. I'm not trying to sell you a technical control to fix this. I want to help you leverage what you already have and see if what you're doing is substantial or, you know, adequate enough to satisfy, you know, to help you sleep at night and also satisfy the requirements of the auditors. Because it's very common that an auditor will come in, run a scan and say, oh, look at all these horrible things that are wrong. And here's a 600 page report. Now go fix it. That doesn't take into account any mitigating controls or policies and procedures that the organization already has in place. So they see a 600 page report and they immediately think the sky is falling you know, our data center must be on fire based on this report. So, you know, if you go in and say, I'm here to help, let's, you know, let's go through what you have already and what has been identified as a problem, and then just start collapsing that into bite-sized chunks that can be addressed and prioritized accordingly. Yeah. I mean, even, even in large organizations, so, you know, a lot of them, some of them get these large reports and, and might you know tend to to ignore some of the recommendations or ignore some of the results just because they don't they they've accepted the risk or they just don't want to put them the time and effort into into changing their way of working you know you see that all the time right it's yeah. not it's not something inherent to a small smaller organization i can see why a small organization might panic because you know they they have more at risk right i mean it's they they've got less their risk footprint is is much smaller than a large organization or their risk appetite, sorry, that might, is much smaller than a larger organization which has some backing and could, could, could survive potential pitfalls. I mean, that I can see why they, why they, why they have more attraction to, to trying to get those things fixed. You mentioned something that was interesting, the technical controls. So do you see, uh, I mean, a, a lot of these smaller organizations are they still running a lot of their own infrastructure or are they moving more and more predominantly to to outsourced infrastructure, including perhaps the cloud? And how do you deal – do you deal mostly with mixed environments or mostly static, you know, single, single type of infrastructure environments? So a lot of the organizations that we're working with tend to be the traditional brick and mortar. We have a data center. We're looking at cloud for small things, but they're not – they're definitely not taking a cloud first stance because, you know, if you talk about financial services, they're still running mainframes for the core banking system. And that's, you know, 
it's probably not as secure as as they think it is. And the last thing you want to do is forklift that and put it in cloud because it's probably not going to be any safer on the public internet than it is in the, the private data center. But what we are seeing is a lot of smaller organizations that, again, can't can't have full-time network and system staff, they'll go to an MSP and they'll outsource maybe their network configurations, firewall monitoring and management. Some of the the low-hanging fruit that would allow them to focus on more triage or triage type incidents and you know business-oriented projects as opposed to making sure all the knobs are being turned on a 24 seven basis. Right. Now that's interesting because I mean, I can see the, I mean, the reasoning's there, right? It's, you've got that traditional space and it's, it's, it's established. It's just, you're, you're lacking those resources. How do you find that? Like, I mean, we, we've been talking on the on virtual sea, so I know you, you, you know, you mentioned you offer other services like threat hunting and an incident response. But if we go back to the, to more of the aspects of, the teams and, and the, the staffing of these teams, how do you see the, what's the staffing like on the lower levels, you know, more towards the actual operational people that you're seeing? I mean, are they mostly focused general IT people and you need to train them up or do some of these organizations have both IT and security people? What kind of teams are you seeing out there and, and what's the impact on, on that, op- that security operations? So it, it really does depend on the size of the organization. I've seen some of our customers have a dedicated security person at a very junior level that is really hungry and wants to learn. So as part of that, there's a lot of mentoring and transfer of information, showing them you know, whether it's how you can reverse engineer malware to you know, here's an incident response procedure that you can go through or you know if if I'm not around then someone says that there's an incident on a particular machine here are the steps that you should follow and why but then there's other organizations that I've encountered where they have a you know a jack of all trades you know this person is responsible for everything from the servers to workstations to the phones on their desks to provisioning laptops, they're just inundated with anything and everything. And though they like the idea of being involved in security, frankly, they don't have the time to do it. So they would rather push some of that off and free up their time to do their other 30 tasks that they've been tasked with. Yeah. I mean, that's always the problem in smaller teams, right? It's like that you're overwhelmed with things that you need to do. You need to keep things running and you need to keep and respond to whatever incident. And I'm talking generic incident. It could, you know, it could be an IT problem. It could be, could be a security problem, but it's always tough when you're in a smaller team because you don't have the necessarily the resources to, to delegate or to, to manage project versus, versus incident. It's always hard. Yeah. And there's always insertions like, Oh, the CEO lost his phone. Here's the new phone and go show them how to use it because yeah. they're not going to understand this new phone compared to the old phone. And that could eat up an entire day. Yeah, or the, the or or the the CEO has seen some new tech some new technology that he's really interested in and wants it in operation as quickly as possible so they can try it out and and see if it brings anything to what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. So, <laughs> we we actually had a CEO one time who 
he swore up and down that he needed a Mac to do his job. And not like a MacBook Pro or anything. I'm talking like an old Mac desktop. And we told him, look, we, we have no one on staff that can troubleshoot or support this. And he's like, oh, okay. So then he went down the street. He bought one, brought it back to his desk, and then logged a help desk ticket saying that he needed someone to come up and set his computer up. <laughs> so Ed were like, okay, I, I guess we're doing this now. I guess we're supporting Max. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that that's the, that's it's funny you mentioned that because I mean it's also one of the ways that the iPhone got into corporate into corporate environments right I mean it's just the top executives coming in with with the device and saying oh I want this on the network I want to be able to read my corporate email from this device and that's an interesting actually that's an interesting you know question is like as a virtual CISO how do you deal with new technology coming in I mean what do you what's your typical advice when you're talking to the board or when you're talking to the to the managers of of some of the some of your customers about new technology directions i mean you know the iphones you know the new iphone with with you know facial recognition to for access i mean i know if i was still in a role in in the end user space i would be fighting like crazy not to enable that as an authentication method because you know i mean they say it's really secure but we know that that's not necessarily true right it's yeah. i mean it's as secure as as the face which you've that's in front of it so i mean how do you advise customers about new technology and how to bring on new technology that that's you know that's an interesting point that needs to be addressed right so i i think that's a battle that even full-time employees in a CISO or CSO role have to face. And really what you have to do is make sure that you've done your research. Say these are the known threats to enabling this and allowing it on the network as part of a, you know, anointed system that we want to have operating on our network. These are the risks and we need to, as a group, decide if this is something that the business wants to accept as a risk and mention, you know, is it, what's the supportability of this thing? Can it be managed centrally? Also talk about some of the individuals that may have access to more sensitive data than others. And really what you're doing, even as a virtual CISO is at the end of the day, you're making recommendations and suggestions based on your expertise, the expertise of your firm and your past experiences and you, you know, you can fight, but you're not going to, you know, you're not going to die on the cross just because you personally believe that a particular device shouldn't be on the network. It's not, ultimately, it's not your decision. You're in a recommendation phase. And kind of as a side note, I know someone who recently was a CISO at a large company and he was told that the organization was going to accept a particular risk and he resigned because he personally could not back the organization accepting that particular risk because ultimately it would adversely impact the business and probably his career if he were to go to another firm. So he graciously bowed out. Like, I understand that you want to accept this against my judgment or my better judgment. So as a result, unfortunately, I'm going to have to go somewhere else. That's an interesting point. I mean, ethics is is a tough battle, right? Because there's, there's the personal aspects of what you believe in and and what you're willing to accept as 
acceptable behavior and acceptable ways of working versus what a business might try to push and might try to imp- might try to yeah you definitely have to pick your battles yeah i i mean you have to pick your battles but i mean there's it's an interest ethics is an interesting aspect right i mean there's lots of things that i probably would in the same situation i probably would have said the same thing right i would have i would have left the organization because there's certain things that that i strongly believe in and that i think businesses should be doing and and the ways that businesses should be operating and you know and if the if if a business violates that way am i you know in my own ethics can i actually sit there and continue to work for that company when i know what they're doing in from my personal belief is is wrong i mean that's but there are extenuating circumstances that could adversely affect that as well like what if you let's say you had three kids who were you know all school age or two of them were going to university that you were paying for maybe your significant other lost their job do your ethics take over or are your ethics greater than the responsibilities you have as an adult to your family and yes I, I firmly believe that if the job market wasn't so hot for CISOs right now, a lot of people would be second guessing their ethics and their convictions because they would need that job. And that is not the case right now. Security jobs are, you know, they're, they're available and for the right people, you have that ability to make the decision of where you're, you know, it's yeah, a yeah, it's, go, right? it's a seller's market right now for CISOs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it definitely is. I mean, even globally, in in, in I think in the infosec industry, it is it is a, it is a seller's market, right? There's there's so much demand right now that I mean, if you if you do have a problem with what you're facing and what you're doing, there's potentially a way out, right? It's not we're not in the situation where you might have to sit in that chair and and bite the bullet, so to speak. While you were you were talking, I was thinking about. Another point is the aspects of, I mean, you probably don't see this because, you know, companies are hiring you to actually do the work. So it's a contractual basis, but I, you know, I've talked to some, to some CISOs where, you know, they're, they're on board, you know, they're in the company, they're they're doing the job, they're trying to get the job done. But at the end of the day, I mean, they're they're unable to progress, right? Things just don't progress at the the speed that they would like. In the same way, you know, I've talked to some CTOs in some industries where they want to change the way things are being done, you know, add, you know, integrate security in the, into the products or things like that, but it's just not moving because they're getting pushback because of the cost, because of, you know, it's just not part of the business roadmap. What would you recommend to people that are facing that situation where they, they can't get things, you know, into play or they, they're having problems just getting that the work not done, but they're actually having problems getting the work initiated and having problems moving the company in the, in the directions that they need to go to be more, more secure? What kind of recommendations would you, would you tell people in that situation? So that's, you know, that's a, the million dollar question, right? How do you... How do you get blood from a stone or how do you move an immovable object? And there's certain people that are convinced that the way they're doing things on a day-to-day basis is sufficient for the the continuity of the business and the security and safety of their customers and employees. And it really comes down to negotiating tactics. So in business school, you learn how to negotiate effectively and how to pick your your anchor points 
and really ultimately your walk away. Like when are you going to give up on a particular fight and, you know, save it for another day? A lot of organizations, you know, and I see this with a lot of like very technical people that have, that have come up through the ranks where they take the approach of, you know, you need to listen to me because I'm very smart and I know this is a big problem. And if you don't do this, you're an idiot. That really doesn't resonate well with someone in senior management because really nobody likes being told that they're an idiot. And they also don't want to be made to feel as if they're intellectually inferior. So you have to approach it. You know, there, there are certain tactics where you can advise people on how to how to better manage certain personality types and not just say that, you know, this has to be done or it's the end of the world. You have to put a business case together that aligns with what that individual or group of individual cares about most. Like for a financial services company, are they more concerned with being able to take money in from their customers? Or are they more concerned with being able to service the customers if they want to take the money out? I would argue that the larger the bank, the more lean there is towards being able to take money in because they can take that money and do more with it. And if the teller machines go down, oh, well, come back later. You can get your money out later. But it's not directly impacting their ability to continue making money off of the capital that they've brought in. Whereas a credit union, they're more member centric. They would say, oh no, our our tellers need to be up way before our ability to take in money because we need to be able to service the members and their requests. So it, it's a sliding scale of, of importance. And if you were writing a business case that would influence one of those types of organizations, you would have to play to not their fears, but their allegiances and, you know, what they really care about. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a good point. I, I want to maybe change the subject a bit. I don't want to go into the, to the whole Equifax debate, but, pers- you know, data leak and specifically of personal data is, is a big issue. I mean, you know, me being based in, in, the, in Europe, we, you know, GDPR is coming online in, in about six months now. So uh, something like something like that incident would, would have cost the company a, a fairly large chunk of fines. Do you think that, that this disparity of the way that we treat personal data in different regions of the world is a big impact for companies? Will it affect in general, not not just small and medium-sized companies, but what, what are your thoughts on, on the effect of, of protecting personal information and the way that it's used in different regions? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, quit. <laughs> I dropped the bomb on you. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's something that I've, you know, I've discussed at length with other people. And I often look at my parents as kind of a bellwether as to how important something is or how mainstream something is. So if I go home for the holidays and this actually happened where they're asking me like, Oh, well, did you hear about the Sony, the Sony entertainment hack? What, what does that mean? Like, does that affect us? And does that affect you and your job? And you know, what does that mean for other industries? You know, that's not something that 10 years ago they would have really asked about. 
they'd be like, oh, a hack. Cool. Good for them. <laughs> but now, you know, whenever there's a high profile breach, especially when it affects personally identifiable information, that hits close to home. And there's that visceral reaction that, you know, how could that company fail me? I let them use my data in exchange for arguable services of value. And, you know, people do take it personally. And a lot of individuals who I will say, you know, as a Canadian, a lot of North Americans in general do not understand the privacy rigor and sensitivity of certain countries' data and privacy laws. Like they think that it's a little excessive or it's too much government. Whereas a lot of that legislation was designed to protect the individuals. So if, you know, if Equifax happened in Germany, for example, or Italy, that would be, you know, I would argue that that would probably be the end of that company because they would get just fined into the ground. They'd be, you know, the land would be salted. Well, I mean, if this this had happened next year, they did say that they had 400,000 UK citizens in in that league so they would have they would have been hit really badly but it also but even in terms of what you know some of these new well specifically gdpr i don't even know how companies like that could actually operate in the in in the european union no because Um, they'd be fined a you know a percentage of their revenue for years to come if they ever wanted to do business with anyone outside of north america (laughs) (laughs) exactly so we're coming up to the to the mark. And just one final thought from you: What do you think is the biggest threat to the small and business, small and medium businesses that you that you deal with on a on a day to day basis? I would say apathy. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> it, it, really, you know, it, it's never happened to us. It's not going to happen to us. Or you know, we have nothing that that anyone would want. I've worked at a bank where I was told that, you know, we're in the middle of the Atlantic. Nobody knows where we are and we have nothing of value that an attacker would want because, you know, attackers don't like money and they don't know what a bank is. And, you know, a map doesn't really matter. A water wall isn't going to protect you, even if you're in the middle of the Atlantic. So, yeah, I I definitely say apathy. You need to change with the times and understand the new risks and threats as they evolve. Yeah, I kind of fully agree with you it's it's incredible how much sometimes we just people just don't care you know just to break it down to the simplest term well thank you andrew and is there any way that some of our listeners can reach you twitter or something like that yeah so i'm fairly active on twitter it's andrew sm hay on twitter and you can always go to our website uh, www.leocybersecurity.com all right. Thank you, Andrew. Rather infrequently. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your time. It was it was a great conversation. So our next episode of 15 will be probably early October. So watch, watch this space for the guest on that episode. Thank you for listening to episode 14 of the Digital Guardian podcast. I can be reached on Twitter at FVT. That's Foxtrot Victor Tango. Please subscribe to our Twitter feed at Digital Guardian and let us know how we're doing.